Exodus 23, and may we hear again God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Thou shalt not raise a false report. Put not thine hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil, neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many to wrest judgment. Neither shalt thou countenance a poor man in his cause. If thou meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. If thou see an ass of him which hateth thee lying under his burden and wouldest forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. Thou shalt not rest the judgment of thy poor in his cause. Keep thee far from a false matter, and the innocent and righteous thou slay thou not, for I will not justify the wicked. And thou shalt take no gift, for the gift blindeth the wise, and perverteth the words of the righteous. Also thou shalt not oppress a stranger, for ye know the heart of a stranger, seeing ye were strangers in the land of Egypt." And six years thou shalt uh, sow thy land, and shalt gather in the fruits thereof. But in the seventh year thou shalt let it rest and lie still, that the poor of thy people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field shall eat. In like manner thou shalt deal with thy vineyards and with thy oliveyards. Six days thou shalt do thy work, and on the seventh day thou shalt rest, that thine ox and thine ass may rest, and the son of thy handmaid and the stranger may be refreshed. And in all things that I have said unto you, be circumspect, and make no mention of the name of other gods, neither let it be heard out of thy mouth. Three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in a year. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread, Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded thee, in the time appointed of the month Abib. For in it thou camest out from Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the firstfruits of thy labors, which thou hast sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering, which is in the end of the year when thou hast gathered in thy labors out of the field. Three times in the year all thy males shall appear before the Lord God. Thou shalt not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven bread, neither shalt the fat of my sacrifice remain until the morning. The first of the firstfruits of thy land thou shalt bring into the house of the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not seethe a kid in his mother's milk. Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, Then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies, and an adversary unto thine adversaries. For mine angels shall go before thee, and bring thee uh, in unto the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. 
Thou shalt not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works, but thou shalt utterly overthrow them, and quite break down their images. And ye shall serve the Lord your God, and he shall bless thy bread and, and thy water, and I will take uh, sickness away from the midst of thee. There shalt nothing cast their young, nor be barren in thy land, the number of thy days I will fulfill. I will send my fear before thee, and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come, and I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee. And I will send hornets before thee, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before thee. I will not drive them out from before thee in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field multiply against thee. But by little and little I will drive them out from before thee, until thou be increased and inherit the land. And I will set thy bound from the Red Sea even to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the desert unto the river, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and thou shalt drive them out from before thee. Thou shalt, not, thou shalt make no covenant with them or with their gods. They uh, shall not dwell in thy land, lest they make thee sin against me. And if thou serve their gods, I will surely be a snare unto thee. May God add his blessing to the reading of his most holy word. The first section of this chapter I have as Exodus 23, 1-9. The overarching theme of this section is that we are to show no partiality in the execution of our moral duties. In order to show this by particular application, Moses makes use of Moses by the inspiration of God makes use of the eighth and ninth commandments: "Thou shalt not steal, and thou shalt not bear false witness," respectively. However, we understand from this general moral principle that this applies to all of God's commandments. Nothing we are to do is to be with partiality. The ninth commandment teaches us that we must maintain and promote truth between man and man, and we are forbidden whatsoever is prejudicial to the truth or injurious to our neighbor's good name. As truth is always objective, our witness to the truth must be likewise objective. In verse 1, we see the general principle set forth, Thou shalt not bear raise a false report that word to raise means can mean to carry or to bear the the idea is that you not only uh, should not take up or give a false report but that you also should not receive it and carry it with you to be uh, one who promotes or propagates a false report so no matter the source then a false report is a false report because it's not true. And so, it being not true, it doesn't matter where it comes from. It doesn't matter how many people are in support of it. It doesn't matter if it's a prince or a poor man that tells you it is still false. 
He demonstrates that this command applies equally in several cases under that general principle of impartiality. We are not to give ourselves over to wicked conspiracies to utter false witness, especially in the case of legal uh, deliberations, which may carry the added heinousness of depriving the victim of life or property. We must also not blindly follow popular opinion based on a lie to do evil and to wrest judgment. Just because something is the majority opinion doesn't make it right. And we should not give special privileges or embellishments or favors because of somebody's economic station, whether it's because we feel bad for them or they have some advantage to give us. It doesn't matter. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. We lament to note how contrary all these principles are to the mind of our modern society, where lies are put for truth, advantage and gains are reasons to promote falsehood. The majority opinion prevails regardless as to its morality, and the supposed privileges or lack thereof is enough to wrest judgment in favor of wickedness. These things ought never to be so named among the children of God. So in verses 5 and 6 then, we also see that this idea of impartiality impartiality is applied to the care we ought to have for our neighbor's property and well-being, whether our friend or enemy, in accord with the Eighth Commandment. Our fallen inclinations or disinclinations to help one or to withhold help from one is not a test of morality. Well, I just didn't want to do it because I didn't feel like doing it is not the test. Or I didn't want to do it because that person, they just don't like me. No, that's not the test either. We must look to the Lord and His righteous law to inform us of what our duty is in every situation. In verse 5, a case of an animal uh, that is owned by our enemy going astray in the absence of his owner. This animal going astray is liable to danger or to loss. And though our inclination could be lack of concern, well, they're not going to know about it. They're not around, right? The The animal could go off and it's no big deal. The responsibility is for us to bring it back again, regardless of our relationship between ourselves and our enemy. In verse 6, we see the danger of property and the overburdening of an ass. In this case, we notice that the donkey of one who hates us is burdened with a heavy load. And as we pass by, we see the donkey uh, suffering underneath the heavy burden. Perhaps the owner is trying to get something off, but the donkey is liable to injury. It's our duty then to go and to help with the weight, regardless of our inclination to do so. In verses 7 through 9, then, we have a special warning given those with the power of judgment in society, princes and judges, who are liable to more heinousness in sin if they should be partial in their judgments. They are to keep themselves from unjust judgments based on an objective, moral, and legal standard because failure to do so will deprive an innocent, a righteous man of life and property while allowing criminals to escape. Oh, that we would hear this word in our day. 
Here we note that rulers and judges are not the final standard of the law, but God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. Psalm 82. Should they fall, fail to judge in righteousness, they place themselves under the condemnation of him whose judgments are eternally righteous. For in verse, five, verse 7, he will not justify the wicked. And so they're to keep themselves from prejudice caused by bribery, caused by a person's economic station, or their affections for or against the accused. In all their judgments, they must pursue the truth of the case insofar as it may be known to finite man and issue judgments according to the objective standards of God's holy law. Nor are they to withhold judgment from a stranger, somebody who's not even of the citizenry of Israel, who might suffer prejudice because he is not an Israelite. It is the same protection of the law for the stranger as it is for uh, the Israelite, so that they might live peaceably so long as they abide from, of the, by the laws of the commonwealth. And God adds reason to this. You too were strangers in the land of Egypt. You know what it means to suffer under wicked tyranny of Pharaoh. Okay, so moving on then to uh, section 2, which is 10 through 19. In this section, we see most eminently that God is the Lord of both our time and our property. He calls us to worship him at set times of his choosing, and he has the sole authority of conscience to regulate how we employ our time and our property he has given us. There are uh, aspects of these commands which we have in this section that are ceremonial, having been abrogated in the New Testament with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly the observance of the Sabbath years and the three feasts. However, we must also recognize that there is a moral equity to them as well. And we'll try to draw those out in these, this reading. The command for the Sabbath years speaks of offering the land rest from cultivation every seventh year. So for six years you're to cultivate the land, to work in it for sowing and reaping to the improvement of your house. But in the seventh year, refrain. Let the land rest. Do no work in that, in, in that year. And in that year, whatever came up of itself is not for the improvement of your house. It is for the poor and the beasts. Regarding the Sabbath years, there are a couple things that we can take notice of. First thing is that the duty of charity towards those who are in need is a consistent and constant duty among the people of God. During the six years that they cultivated their land, they were to leave the corners of their field unchecked, unreaped, so that the poor may glean, not improve themselves, but glean, provide for their need as they passed by the field. Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, and 23, 22. In the seventh year, that which grew without cultivation is also considered a gift of the Lord to provide for the maintenance of the poor and the beasts. We too must uh, have a mindset of a Christian economy in the way that we handle the increase of our estates so that we too might have that set aside for the care of those who are in need. Verse 
especially among the household of God. Second, the Israelites were taught a reliance upon the Lord and allowing the land to lie uncultivated in the seventh year. In the sixth year, the Lord promised a threefold increase to provide for the year, the sixth year, to provide for the seventh year in which the land rested, and to provide in the eighth year when they were awaiting the increase from cultivation to arise again. The Lord promised that bountiful harvest, and as they approached unto that seventh year, they were not to fall apart. What are we going to do for the next three years? No, they were to rely humbly upon their Lord to provide for their needs. So we recognize too, don't we, that promotion comes neither from east nor west nor south, but God is the judge. He putteth down one and he setteth up another, and he is able to do more abundantly than we can ask or think. Third, the Sabbath years bear witness, as we see in Romans chapter 8, that the earth itself, the creation itself, groans, being subject to vanity, but not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected it in the same hope. Just like the Sabbath rest is instituted that we might remember in one day in seven that, we, uh, that this is not our final estate, that there is a rest that we look forward to, so in the Sabbath years, the people of Israel were to recognize that all of creation is subject to vanity and awaiting for the manifestations of the Son of God. It's looking forward to that end. And so it was a witness in their land that that was not the final estate. In all this, we learned that the whole cadence of our lives should witness to the fact that this world is not the end. There is a day coming in which we, as the children of God and the whole of creation, are to rest forever in the inheritance that was promised in the person and work of the Messiah. Then we go into the weekly Sabbath, and I won't spend a whole lot of time here, but it is with that same hope that we enter in onto the weekly Sabbath. That's why we're here today to enjoy and to rest in our Lord in good and holy labors to glorify his holy name, that we, our families, our servants, our businesses, our, our um, animals are all resting for whatever labor we might employ them to so that we might be refreshed. And so verse 13 um, goes on to general duty to walk circumspectly. Okay, a command reiterated by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5.2, that in whatever we are to do, we are to do it with a careful consideration of our duties toward God. And particularly applied in the forbidding of idolatry. Because nothing is more injurious to our duties toward God than serving false gods. Which is why as well as when we see later in the chapter that he is telling them when you go into their land don't follow after their gods. The reason for that is because that's going to draw them back from any duty that they have toward God. Because the doctrines and commandments of man, false worship and all that will always push out our duties toward God. Moving on then we've got to be quick here uh, for sake of time. Verses 14 through 19, we have the application of the fourth commandment extended to those feasts of the year. There were three times in the year in which all of the males, at the very least, were to come into Jerusalem. 
We have the Feast of Unleavened Bread or, and, or Passover, Pesach. We have the Feast of Weeks, Shuvot, and the Feast of Booth, Sukkoth. They are um, things to note here is that there is, there is a particular emphasis of the apostle, I'm sorry, of Moses in, these, uh, in this passage. He's focusing on the fact that we are to demonstrate uh, that all of our earthly bounty comes from the mercies of God, which we enjoy uh, as being graces uh, from him in salvation. So if they had any increase in the land, if they had any thank offerings, any peace offerings or so forth, they were to bring those with them as they approached the Lord to worship in Jerusalem. The Feasts of Unleavened Bread was that type of our redemption uh, in Christ from the bondage of sin that was typified in those days in the coming out of Egypt. The Feast of Weeks or Pentecost was a celebration seven weeks after Passover during a time where the first fruits of their harvest began to ripen. And it also coincided with when they arrived at Mount Sinai to receive that law of the Lord so that they might produce the first fruits of obedience unto him. And then we have the Feast of Tabernacles that was celebrated at the end of the harvest, at the end of their year, 15th day of the seventh month, as a season of thanksgiving for all that the Lord had provided them. The moral application of the last two feasts, we must recognize that the fruits of holiness from the first to the last are of the Lord. Uh, though they come by means, though that they come by cultivation, by nourishing ourselves in the word and walking in obedience to his commands, any increase is the supply of God's bountiful grace as he works in us both to will and to do after his good pleasure, as we saw in Philippians 2. Lastly, um, we see that um, we have the angel of the Lord that is sent before you. Who is this angel? In short, it's none other than the second person of the Trinity, the coming Messiah, uh, who led them in the wilderness, who we see Jacob wrestling with uh, as he enters back into the promised land, and that is testified later to have redeemed me from all evil in chapter 48 of Genesis. It is also who Paul identified in 1 Corinthians 10 uh, as Christ who was tempted in the wilderness by the people. And so it was the Lord Jesus Christ whom they were commanded to follow and through whom they were to partake of the grace that would keep them in the way and bring them into the place that God had prepared for them. Notice the exhortations in verse 21 and 22. We are to beware of him. We are to obey him and provoke him not. We must have a holy, reverent fear for Christ, knowing that the name of the Lord is in him. And as we hear Paul exhort the Corinthian church, we must not act with presumption and tempt the Lord. We see what uh, Moses adds here with regards to that. They, he will not pardon your transgressions. This is not an absolute statement, and we are thankful for that. It's not to say that salvation depends upon perfect obedience. It is to say, however, that to act presumptuously against the holy name of God evinces that we are not partakers of his grace, and therefore there is no pardon. As Christians, we should not sin with a high hand, acting presumptuously against the Lord and against his holiness. 
We are to put off the old man, put on the new man, and walk according to his commands as far as his grace uh, supply us. So um, we also see the promises that are given. Um, they're given in, uh, to a church in its minority, and so they are given in sensible and natural types that are to point to spiritual truths. So we see that he promises to be an enemy to our enemies. He promised to give us protection from all wicked devices and machinations of the enemy of our soul. Enemies of our soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil, that we may be more than conquerors through him that loved us. Second, that obedience uh, will be for the preserving of our well-being and health, as we've been hearing about in the sermons we've recently listened to. He will provide for all of our needs, both spiritual and physical, and that the kingdom of God would continue to advance in this world as Christ goes forth conquering and to conquer by the sword of his word, calling his elect to himself and driving out his and our enemies. And so we have great encouragement at the end of the chapter here as Moses closes the book of the covenant. Thus ends the reading of Exodus 23.